You're listening to a Bellingcat Discord server stage talk titled 0 to 60 Getting Started in Open Source Investigations. The talk was given by Line of Actual Control, an independent open source researcher whose work spans from flight tracking to conflict analysis and beyond. The talk featured advice on how to build up confidence as an early career open source researcher. As well as practical advice on how to develop important skills. The stage talk was hosted by Eric Toller on the Bellingcat Discord server on October 20th, 2022. Um, okay, so let's、um, let me get this going back here. So, this is the first one of these I've hosted. Giancarlo normally hosts these, so I'm a little、mm-hmm. bit of a newbie when it comes to this. So, Um, excuse me if I have any hiccups.、Um, hello, everyone.、Um, good to see we got about 40 people here in the chat or so. We'll have more people tri-、uh, filter in as、uh, people see the、uh, tweet that we just put out.、Um, thanks for joining us.、Um, RC is what we're going to be calling line of actual control through the talk today.、Um, we'll be calling him RC.、Um, and we're here to have a stage talk about some of your work and just any advice you have to people who are trying to get into open source investigation,、um, some of your experiences, some of the research you've done lately. Um, and so on. So, maybe just to start off,、um, maybe you want to introduce yourself and just let us know、um, who you are, what you do, and what are some things you're interested in and working on in your research、um, interests. Absolutely, totally.、Um, yeah, so great to be speaking with you all.、Um, yeah, as, as Ark mentioned, I'm RC, and I、uh, have been involved in the、um, open source community、uh, on and off for like four or five years now, maybe.、Um, And I write the, the open source blog, Line of Actual Control.、Um, as I mentioned before, it's a bit of a mouthful, but uh, I, uh, during my you know, professional life, I'm, I'm a data analyst at a tech company. So, sort of, but not really related to、um, open source, the open source world. I mean, really only in the sense that I use kind of logic, observations,、uh, advanced Googling, and things like that to, to do my job. But,、um, Mainly, I、uh, kind of pursue my open source work outside of that. It's、uh, just a hobby and a passion of mine、um, to focus on, focus really, really in depth on、uh, stories that might be off,、uh, off the you know, radar or out of the zeitgeist, really.、Um, I、uh, got started,、um, believe it or not, actually by reading Bellingcat. Years ago, in, in probably 2014, 2015,、uh, which to me sounded, seemed like a golden age of you know, open source investigations.、Um, not only were people writing and publishing really, really interesting things, but people were also learning a lot about the field itself, you know, as, as、uh, um, technology and progressed and as people got more、um, invested in the field. It was really interesting to see the、uh, field itself like, grow and expand and、um, get more dynamic over time. So、uh, it, was, it was awesome to kind of like, observe that firsthand. And、um, that is really originally what made me want to get into、um, you know, open source investigations as well.、Um, and then, if you know, I, I'm happy to kind of like, give, the whole, give the whole spiel of、uh, you know, my work itself. But、um, uh, otherwise, that's the, the long and short of it. Great. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, it's a really interesting point about it. You said like kind of the. Golden age or whatever. There's, I don't know, I don't know if there's a, a quite a golden or a silver age or bronze age, maybe, of, of open source、exactly. work. We're, we're in one of the ages. I don't know which of the ages, but we're in some kind of metallic age right now with all、exactly. the Ukraine work.、Um, but yeah, I look back to 2014 and 15, especially, as kind of a, an interesting time for us because it was,、um, 
I mean, like, you know, I, I also worked, you know, a normal desk job and then did this for fun, like as a hobby. I know a lot of the people who do this work do it as a, you know, for fun as a hobby before they get into doing it, you know, before they, you know, start paying their mortgage or their rent with it. Uh, mortgage, if you're lucky, your rent, if, if you're normal, which um, <laughs> nowadays. So maybe um, you can tell us, I mean, because of course you still have your day job, right? At a tech company. Um, what what are some things, because this is kind of the most common you know, question um, we get, uh, maybe maybe the most, but one of the most common questions we get is how you transition from someone who just follows people on Twitter or Discord or TikTok or whatever platform of your choices, and how do you start to um, either you know make make a buck off of it? Uh, I'm not sure. Is your Substack is it a paid Substack or a free Substack? It's, it's totally free. Um, you can free. You could, so you're not uh, making a buck off of it. Okay. No, exactly. I have a I have um. Uh, one advertiser who, uh, okay. you know, if you need a, a open open cage geocoder to do uh, uh, geocoding, definitely uh, look them up. But yeah, otherwise, it's totally free. Um, Got it. But theoretically, you could be making a buck off of this if, if yep. you if you start yeah. charging. <laughs> so how people can transition to uh, being, you know, widely read or semi widely read, because of course, you know, none of us are super widely read because this is a relatively niche community. Um, or like I said, make, making a living off it. So what what advice would you have, or what could you, from your experience, what would you share? Yeah, totally. Um, so I think uh, I'm uh, kind of of two minds uh, for folks who want to get in, involved in um, open source investigations, period. Uh, I, I think the, the, the route that I took, and I know a lot of other uh, folks take, is through um, geolocation. Uh, I think um, this speaks to people who are like very visual, um, have you know strong spatial understanding, or at least strong spatial interest. Uh, and um, being involved in geolocation is great, not just for geolocation's sake, but also because it's uh, like the perfect exercise to strengthen the um, way of thinking required for any open source investigation. Um, you know, geolocation obviously like plays a role in you know, investigations involving satellites or um, pictures or videos or whatever, uh, which is all awesome. But in, in trying to find the actual location of media, uh, that itself requires logic, observation, attention to detail, um, maybe more than attention to detail, attention to really minor details, it teaches you to figure out what's important and what's not. Um, and then uh, perhaps my favorite thing is it also teaches you to like know when you're right. Um, because, you know, if you find 10 features in a picture that match up with, with satellite imagery, your chances are you're pretty darn right there. Um, and uh, I think like practicing and honing all those skills, um, like I said, is not just helpful for geolocation itself, um, but also for, um, you know, honing, like I said, those those skills for any um, open source uh, investigation. Um, the other uh, side of my brain, the other kind of thing I'm thinking about is uh, the other way to get involved in these sorts of investigations or searches is uh, just finding absolutely everything you possibly can about a single small topic or event of interest. Um, mm -hmm. I think doing so teaches you in a way that geolocation might not necessarily is to be really, really creative and really, really open-minded about gathering evidence. Um, geolocation is great in that it allows you to focus on one or a very small you know, number of pictures or videos or um, you know, evidence about a, a particular event, but uh, going really deep on an event also teaches you about like what other sources are out there. I, I think in, in um, contrast to geolocation, it, it hones evidence gathering techniques and might be better for people who are more into kind of like reading, writing, researching, um, you know, scraping big data, um, things like that, uh, where you can really kind of throw as much as possible at the wall, see what sticks, and then um, 
kind of write your story or, or find interesting stuff um, out of that. Those are those are kind of my two my two uh, you know introductory paths, if you will, about uh, about geolocation. But I'm sure there are plenty of different uh, routes out there that I haven't even considered or or other people prefer. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, this is kind of when I think about the role of open source. Again, I hate I hate the term OSINT or open source research because yeah, it's so narrow. But that. digital, I call it digital investigation or, or getting that's on the computer that. or get, just getting yeah. on the computer. Maybe and when I think about its role and what it really adds to kind of the world and the information space is there's kind of a um you know there's a vacuum of of analysis because you have professional journalists and analysts who you know they're they're paid for their work and their time and they only have so many hours in a day and they have deadlines mm -hmm. and restrictions and they have to publish you know x number of stories and they have editors and all that and they don't have time to do you know a, a, a mega ultra deep dive into you mm -hmm. know individual events especially like you know look at the war in ukraine look at the stuff in azerbaijan and um, armenia now mm -hmm. um you know some people may have time but but it you know it takes a while so you know, going, as you say, ultra deep dive into, you know, individual events fills kind of that vacuum, that gap where, you know, professional um, salaried, I guess you could say, analysts um, and journalists just don't, I mean, not not knocking on them. They just don't have time and, and the capacity to do these things for all these events. And that that's an area to where if you wanted to kind of, you know, make your niche and kind of, you know, provide value to the world and also get people to read you. Um, you know, that's like you're saying, not just geolocation. That's the first step. Geolocation is just one tool and uh, of many. Yeah, there was. Um, I mean, on your on your point about like going really deep, there was uh, one of the last pieces I worked on was trying to. Um, it was kind of a combination of the two. It was geolocation, but also going really deep on a particular event. I was trying to geolocate um, a Tachka Rus Russian missile launch um, mm -hmm. from Ukraine over in July, and. Um, uh, just thinking, you know, trying to put myself in the shoes of, you know, somebody who works in a professional newsroom or, um, you know, at, at, at a uh, I don't know, think tank or something like that. Uh, and um, comparing, you know, how I think that piece would have looked versus the one that I actually wrote is radically different, right? I mean, in my piece, I was pulling in like, you know, public transit maps from the 70s, you know, weather patterns, uh, you know, random, uh, like telegram messages from months ago. Uh, and it was just really, really wide ranging. And it was um, the kind of piece that I love to write. Um, because it was so, you know, wacky and weird and out there uh, in terms of the various data sources that I um, brought in to, to tell the story, um, which I don't think really would have been the case um, if uh, I had been limited to a word count or um yeah you know other other limit like that or, or strict deadlines and editorial restrictions yeah. and all that yeah yeah so yeah maybe you can share because now we're kind of talking about all the meta issues maybe we can talk more concretely so what are um maybe some of the work that you're proudest of that you've done i know you you collaborated with john carlo years ago on some work i don't know if any recent projects or maybe some of your your personal hall of fame anything that you've yeah um, especially interested in talking about i can share links to it and to the chat as well yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so one that I'm uh, really proud of over the uh, spring, so it was the earliest stages of the, the war in Ukraine, um, was um, I, I was starting to get involved in, in some uh, Discord communities and uh, research what I'm sure um, most of the folks either on this line or, or listening to it um, have heard of, which are the Russian radio intercepts that were like really, really popular. Mm -hmm. Or I shouldn't say popular, that's the wrong word. Um, you know, getting a lot of notoriety, I should say, at um, the beginning of the war. And um, I found this one uh, transcript, essentially, that was uh, going back and forth between um, two people. Um, they had these call signs, uh, Volk and Consul, and uh, they were um, just exchanging numbers here and there, exchanging numbers, exchanging numbers, exchanging numbers. 
And um, I was so curious what this uh, list of numbers actually meant. Um, I uh, could kind of tell based on some like hints that they were giving that um, it, they were, it sounded like they were talking about an artillery strike, um, specifically planning an artillery strike. But uh, I really was just so curious to find out, did the strike actually happen? Where was it? When was it? Um, and if, if possible, who are these folks involved? Um, and uh, I essentially went back into uh, Soviet mapping archives and um, found that the uh, coordinates that, um, or the, the numbers, I should say, that Vulcan Consul were discussing um, seemed to match up pretty well, actually, with a coordinate system used by the, the Soviet military um, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, and in matching up the numbers that Vulcan Consul were, were discussing with uh, maps outside, uh, or Soviet maps outside uh, Mariupol, um, was able to actually pin down where uh, this artillery strike took place in, um, in in early March, I believe it was. Uh, and that was just one of the ones that I am like particularly proud of, but also kind of goes back to that half geolocation, half deep dive um, paradigm we were, we were discussing earlier, um, because it required this, uh, you know, deep dive into the this odd and, and unique Soviet military mapping system uh, to pin down this very modern, uh, conflict issue so i really like that one you had to go deep into the archives for that one that's really interesting yeah literally into the archives <laughs> literally yeah yeah uh, oh, that's super interesting um do you have any other um any other pieces maybe a little bit further out that you've done that was very recent obviously i shared a link by the way for those who are listening i shared the link in the stage talk stage talk chat um, channel for that investigation yeah, the other one that I really liked, um, and this was uh, great too, I think because it spoke to the power of the community, like the open source community and the, the willingness of other people who may be total strangers um, to work with you and um, uh, you know spend time validating your ideas and stuff was actually the piece that Giancarlo and I did for Bellingcat. Um, I wanna say it was 2020, um, maybe, maybe it was 2021. I, it, was, it was a couple years ago, uh, but um, we basically, uh, I noticed that the uh, Venezuelan military had been posting these photos of um, n-numbered planes. So if a plane has like n bunch of numbers uh, registration, it's a U.S. registered plane. Um, and these planes were basically left smoking ruins across the, the countryside of Venezuela. And the Venezuelan military was saying, hey, we shot down this uh, drug trafficking plane. I was like, that's really weird. You know, these uh, all apparent... Um, uh, U.S. registered planes are allegedly being involved in uh, drug trafficking, again, according to the, the Venezuelan military. Sorry to interrupt you real quick, but just for people who don't know, an N-number plane means it's in the FAA registry, so the Federal Aviation Authority. So if it's in every country has its own number registration system, right? And if it has an N dash and then string of digits, it means it's registered with the U.S. Um, aviation Authority. So sorry to interrupt you. No, no, no exactly. Thank you that, for that, that clarification. Um, which is why I found it so weird that all these planes are being, you know, destroyed in and around Venezuela. Uh, so anyway, um, we used um, like FAA data, NTSB, which is in the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board, I think it stands for, um, basically investigate aircraft accidents and whatnot. Uh, 
and um, a bunch of uh, like open corporates data and a whole host of other um, data sets to investigate uh, like the ownership structures of these um, planes that were getting uh, you know blown up by uh, by the Venezuelan military. Uh, and we found that uh, these planes were from like a legal perspective radioactive. They had uh, these really, really convoluted ownership structures. Uh, they were sometimes bought in cash. They were uh, you know housed in three or four different like overlapping trusts and LLCs, uh, all to kind of obscure the, um, the, uh, what they call the beneficial owner of these planes, you know, who actually owned the plane. Um, the Bellingcat owner, or excuse me, Bellingcat owner, Bellingcat yeah. editor we worked with. Hopefully uh, not, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, fingers crossed. Um, uh, I, I apologies. I, I think his name is, uh, uh, Yoan. Owen, I don't want to. Oh, Owen, yeah, it, it's an uh, Irish spelled name. Owen, E O G H A N. Yeah, it looks like Yogan if you are an American like me. Yeah. <laughs> no, me too. I, uh, I apologies, Owen. Um, but to his credit, he actually um, went and called all of these, uh, you know, trusts, LLCs, and um, and uh, allegedly beneficial owners to, you know give them the time of day and let them, let them, uh, you know, say their piece. And they, they all hung up on him, which I, I found really interesting. Uh, but um, all to say the, the like scheme or the pattern really that we uncovered um, because we weren't really able to uncover uh, much about who originally owned these planes, you know, who was actually benefiting from the um, ownership structures. Uh, but the ownership structures themselves, you know, uncovering this pattern itself was, was fascinating. And um, Giancarlo and I, uh, yeah, like worked for a couple of months putting that investigation out and tracking a couple of the planes involved and um, so forth. So uh, yeah, that was a couple of years back, but I, that was, that was another one I, I really enjoyed working on. That's super interesting. Yeah. It's a totally different, um, uh, both lots of layers of complexity, right? With both, both the stories you yeah. talk about, but totally different approaches. Yeah. And also, uh, you probably got about the equal amount of um, red reply from these people as you would have the Russian military. Um, yep. yeah. So uh, I mentioned this earlier, but if anyone has any questions they want to ask um, RC, then please uh, put them into the stage talk chat. Um, we got two questions already, but we'll be happy to take more so we can get a Q&A session in just, um, just a bit. So um, are there any, so we've talked about kind of your general approach and kind of mindset, kind of some meta issues um, on how to approach getting into doing open source work. Do you have any particular, because people always talk about like what tools to use, what tools to use, and I never find that super helpful. Um, maybe any particular skills that you would uh, recommend. So like you, you mentioned earlier, kind of digging in the Soviet, you know, um, archive, you know, Soviet, not necessarily Soviet archives, but Soviet like coordinates, which is not necessarily a skill. I mean, if you know, you know, if you're a Soviet targeting expert, that's great, but that's probably not going to come up often. But if some general kind of skills and things that, you know, maybe more concrete things people could work on that you um that you you use yourself, or maybe that you wish that you had, and maybe if you can go back in time ten years that you <laughs> you would work to develop. Totally. Um, let's see, so I, I got to say uh, a couple things. I, I in terms of hard skills, uh, I definitely wish I came to programming earlier than I did. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm uh, my late twenties now, and uh, I really only started Python in the last couple of years, and that has proven helpful just time and time again already in the, the relatively short period of time. Uh, and if I could go back and, you know, go to college again, uh, choose a career path again, I'd, I'd probably do something more in the, the computer science realm. Uh, but uh, aside from that, um, as far as like soft skills are concerned, uh, creativity and open-mindedness will help you again and again and again. Um, mm -hmm. 
every time you like hit a um, roadblock or you think that you've exhausted every possible lead in your um, search for whatever, um, give it a day or two and then uh, try to think about something that you haven't covered yet. I know that's not great advice, but um, the uh, real like ability to think outside the box and um, be creative about the the data that you're looking for the um you know people you can possibly talk to to get more information um has uh, really really helped me and i know it's also helped a lot of other people in the community too um stay uh stay making progress forward progress in their um investigation so um those are the two kind of that come to mind for me creativity and you know open-mindedness yeah i'm with you totally i mean i a lot of people who are the best investigators are people who have no i mean i guess the hard background is great like having you know tristan in the chat is is echoing that having python is could make your life easier for sure but yeah just a create a creativity and be able to approach you know problem solving of you know knowing you know like you said earlier the the with looking through the soviet you know era coordinates that's something you probably wouldn't think of first of all and there's really nothing you can't really like coach that it's either not necessarily not necessarily you have it or you don't but it's something that you can definitely uh harness, yeah that's something you can practice on. Yeah. Um, I almost wish too that like, uh, you mentioned things that I uh, wish I did better. Um, I almost wish I was more, uh, I don't know, this is gonna sound weird, but I almost wish I had more of an artistic bent, you know? Uh, yeah. I think um, people who are really strong artists also have uh, like a spatial or visual understanding of uh, events that I mm -hmm. sometimes mm -hmm. find tough to put myself in, in into, you know, those situations or into those shoes. Um, so maybe that's a skill that people can work on. And if you're a really good artist and also are involved in the open source community, give me a shout, you know, let me know yeah, if, you, you if you can, uh, you know, corroborate or, or deny my uh, assumptions there. It's it's weird. We've had so many, like, I think like off the top of my head, like three different um, visual arts slash arts, like departments and universities who've reached out to us who want to do like talks and workshops because they're like so fascinated by, again, like our graphics and our, articles are kind of ugly or whatever but like you know like you know like geolocation with like the boxes and the street level imagery mm -hmm. plus satellite and stuff people just find it you know people who with that kind of a brain find it very fascinating mm -hmm. so yeah i i wish i don't have that kind of brain at all either so i'm kind of jealous of people who yeah, do maybe see this differently i completely agree and that's why i find some of the work that people like um i think they're called forensic architecture are doing yeah 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 uh, yeah, just like absolutely fascinating. You know, the if you on the open source side of things or or you know digital investigation side of things can assemble all this evidence using you know the skills that the community affords and uh, work with people who um, can transform all that information into a literal physical reconstruction of the mm -hmm. um, the, the location in which an event took place. I mean, that's just incredibly powerful. That's that's. Is, I, I think form some of the basis of um, the best investigations I've read recently. Yeah, I think most people, well, I hope most people in the chat are familiar with, are familiar with forensic architecture, but if you aren't, there's a link to it in the um, stage talk chat. And, but yeah, they do, um, we've worked with them quite a few times. I think they've worked with New York Times visual investigation teams as well. I think they work with Christian and some of his stories are. Um, and yeah, they do these really insane, um, re like, fit, like, like 3d reconstructions um like you know like these cad programs but like very very way above my punching um weight um and they've done stories especially around conflicts that have like recreated and which lets you shed light because you can reconstruct the events of like you know bomb falling or whatever this, this what they do is incredible it's not just not just you know for show it actually has investigative um chops and purpose behind it too it's really really cool Okay, so let's get into some of these questions we have. And of course, if you guys you guys have any questions, please dump them into the stage talk chat. 
Um, the first um, chat we got was, and hopefully everyone can hear, I saw some complaints earlier about audio. I hope everyone can hear. Um, okay. I'm talking right into my mic and I tested it earlier, so hopefully everything's okay. But I can hear you fine, RC. Um, first question we got was, um, how do you organize your data? Ooh, <laughs> that's a really good question. Uh, usually through uh, Google Sheets, uh, it's uh, yeah. corny, but it's just like the the thing that works best for me. I, I've also really liked um, working on stories where I have built a data set myself, um, either through um, you know, coding or scraping, uh, or just through like straight up legwork. Um, there was there was one that I uh, worked on um, finding Ethiopian soldiers who were being transported to and from the Tigray region on Ethiopian Airlines jets. And um, that one really like the core and I think almost only uh, research document I had was this long Google sheet of um, these soldiers where they were um, seen, you know, whether there was a Ethiopian Airlines aircraft involved, when it was, which aircraft it was, et cetera, yada, yada, yada. Um, yeah, uh, I, I got to say Google Sheets uh, has <laughs> massively benefited from, uh, or I have massively benefited from having Google Sheets in my back pocket. Yeah, almost every big Bellingcat investigation, like the Navalny investigation and some that are coming out next week, and every every big investigation, we have lots of data. It's all Google Sheets. Not so. Yes, I could definitely. People always think there's like this really fancy, crazy data problem. Like, no, it's just it's just spreadsheets. It's just exactly. it takes forever to look through, but it's just lots of spreadsheets with lots of manual input. <laughs> or Python. If you have Python, Python, you can automate some of it. But yeah, it's always like I think it's funny because uh, you know I hear people ask like, "Oh, what's your what's your tech stack?" I'm like, "Dude, my tech stock stack is Python and Google Sheets." You know, it, yeah. Python is <laughs> it's mostly just Google Sheets. Yeah, if I'm really chaotic, it'll be Google Docs. But yeah, if, I, if, yeah. if I'm a little organized, Google Sheets. Yeah. Um, so the second question we got was uh, like a little bit more inside how you find a project in the first place. So I assume this is highly person or interest dependent, but um, um, for what has, but for you in particular, what has drawn you to particular projects in the past? In other words, what feeds your top of the funnel for all the other pro possible projects you can get into? Uh, that's a great question. Um, and something that we haven't actually talked about um, too much yet, which is, I think, the power of social media. Um, because I find so many leads uh, through being on Twitter, being on Discord, um, and seeing what people I respect and um, admire in the community are posting about, are following, are um, you know contributing to. Uh, so as for my kind of like personal um, personal process, uh, you know, you mentioned top of the funnel, like. I have I have a very chaotic uh, tree of life like document of uh, things that I think I should look into at some point, either when I have the time or um, effort or inclination or whatever. Uh, and when I do have you know extra time after work or when I'm not um, when I've just finished a, a post for Light of Actual Control or whatever, I'll um, uh, just kind of pick an idea that that seems interesting for me and uh, do what I was talking about at the beginning of the chat, which is just see if I can find absolutely anything and everything about that uh, that that individual event. Um, so in kind of in doing so, then I am like able to travel, I guess, to the middle or uh, subsequently bottom of the funnel. Um, but I think what for me, at least what makes a good investigation is um, not only being able to find uh, as much information um, as possible on it, but also, and this is, I think, where you uh, get into personal preference, uh, but also um, stories that 
aren't being uh, covered or the angle that I'm working on are not being covered uh, to um, to that story. So I think there's kind of like a, a Venn diagram there, right? It's like on one circle is the data that you, that you can assemble. You know, how much can you actually pump into it? Um, is it compelling? Is it interesting? Whatever. Uh, the other circle is um, the stories that aren't really being covered. Uh, so, you know, is it kind of like off the radar? And again, this is, this is, like I said, my personal preference. Is it off the radar? Is it, um, you know, hold interest for people? And then in the middle where the, the uh, circles overlap is really where I try to uh, focus my investigation. So, um, you know, a lot of people in um, the uh, digital investigations community will um, do like a lot of geolocations and, you know, they'll geolocate every conflict event, you know, they'll uh, figure out the registration and uh, flight track of every plane that they can, you know, possibly see, um, which is awesome. I think that's like provides a great retroactive data set and people really, really enjoy that sort of thing. Um, but I also try, I, I try to kind of like move away from that a little bit in um, that I just look at things that I think have, um, have a, uh, have a little bit more of a, you know, off the radar bent. Um, so anyway, that was, that was like a very long and rambling explanation. That was good. That was good. Anything you want me to follow up on there? Just let me know. Great. Um, so, uh, just a quick question. Someone asked when the recording will be posted. Probably soon. Giancarlo. Um, hi, Giancarlo, who's listening to this, probably. Um, he is doing recording right now, and he'll get it up probably. I think he usually does it the same day. So, it'll probably be later today. He'll get it up. Um, so, there's a question about can you send us an invite to the communities you really work around when doing investigations? I'll let you look at that in the chat later to answer yourself. Um, the next one was, oh, can you give any practical examples of when you're programming? So like the Python, um, when it's mm -hmm. coming handy. Yeah. Um, hmm. Actually, you know, if you want a little uh, tease to what's coming down the uh, the road for line of actual control in the next few weeks, um, I posted on Twitter a week or, week or two ago about um, uh, Tachka uh, missile launches in, in Ukraine, um, Russian Tachka missiles uh, specifically. Um, and I mentioned I wrote that one post focusing on that one launch um, and kind of going really deep into that. The, I think, second or follow-up part to that is um, this piece that I'm working on at the moment, uh, which is tracking as many as as many Tachka launches by Russia as I possibly can in Ukraine. Um, and while that might not necessarily sound uh, Python-y, uh, what I've done is collect a list of, I think there's probably like 40 or 50 possible launches of any sort. Um, and I've gotten a general location for each one. And then um, I read that into um, uh, GeoPanda's um, GeoData frame, um, added a radius. So I added like the radius of uh, Tachka missiles um, themselves, which is stated to be 120 kilometers. Um, and then I've uh, dissolved the areas of uh, non-overlap, leaving just the areas of uh, overlap in order to see like the most common launch locations or, or region that contains the most likely launches for for Tachka missiles. So in other words, if you have an area of Ukraine that has uh, 20 Tachka uh, launch radii overlap, um, then you can be a little bit more certain that, hey, maybe the Tachkas are being launched from this area. Can you find out anything more about that? Are there Russian bases there? Um, so, like I said, that's that's kind of like the, uh, both a little bit off the beaten path, but also um, involves some honestly kind of basic uh pandas geopandas um uh python uh really it, it you know nothing too crazy and i'm sure um you know most folks who have a you know, basic understanding of python can um something like that together 
Great. Um, the next one is kind of goes with the same as the lead up to that is how do you um, how did you manage to get to a level of programming that was actively useful for you? So um, was <laughs> it uh, did, so this kind of like a t- cost benefit? Did you have you ended up if you were to add up? All the time you've saved doing this versus the time you've learned Python, are you out? Um, are you profiting or are you in the red still? Yeah, yeah. Oh man, that is the million dollar question, isn't it? Uh, let me let me uh, take a, a slightly different track there. I look at the code that I wrote two or three years ago, and I'm like, what was I thinking? That is the ugliest thing I have ever written, I have ever seen. You know, uh, if I uploaded that to GitHub as is, uh, you know the Hub admins would just come to my house and shoot me. Uh, it uh, looks awful. Um, that being said, though, if it's small and it accomplishes what you need it to, uh, uh, then you can't really argue with it. You know, if, if it didn't take you that long and uh, it saved a lot of time, um, then great. Uh, I think I want to like look at it more uh, on a project by project basis um, because there. Uh, there are some things that I, you know, you write, I don't know, 10 lines of code and it saves you hours of manual parsing and that's amazing. Um, but there are other things that, um, so I'm trying to think of like uh, examples of each one of these. Uh, so yeah, to take the Toshka example, uh, if I had, you know, uploaded all of those into uh, QGIS or something or Google uh Earth and drawn a manual radius for each one and then tried to like find out the areas of overlap, I would have gone out of my mind doing that and that probably would have taken a long time and not been very pretty. Um, so that one definitely did save a lot of time. One that I am not sure uh, I took the most efficient approach to was um, I have this uh, Twitter bot that um, I have kind of mixed feelings on uh, called Warship um, or ShipSpotter, excuse me, uh, that um, basically searches through um, the uh, port webcams for uh, Kiel, Germany, Rostock, Germany, and Nuke, Greenland, um, and tries to determine if the ships it sees in uh, each of those webcams are naval vessels or not. It works okay. It, it definitely does pull in uh, pull in um, naval vessels, but also uh, pulls in um, a lot of things that aren't naval vessels, namely cruise ships. Uh, and... Um, that unfortunately took me a long time to get to that like only somewhat viable uh, state for for that project. Um, so I, I think if I, I need to go back and look at that code and uh, you know refashion it and make it better and make the models all run better. Um, but that was another one where I am not proud of the amount of time it took to uh, get to that you know only somewhat okay uh, naval guessing naval vessel guessing uh, situation. So. Um, yeah, anyway, hope that answers your question, but... Yeah, no, that was good. Yeah, so the answer is, it depends. Like, like every, yeah, the answer to every single question when you ever get a Q&A is, oh, it depends, yeah. <laughs> it um, depends. Yep. So the next round of questions, there's three questions here. They're all kind of the same kind of zone here. Uh, I'm going to very quickly read through the three of them, and I'll kind of just sum- summarize them. So, like, so 1A is, um, how often do OSINT investigations affect the course of policymakers? 1B is what are the limitations of OSINT investigators and, you know, can, can, you, can you intuit classified information from OSINT investigations? Any tips up on that? And 1C is how does OSINT have a role of overcoming the democratic deficit between constituents and those who make decisions on military matters? So it's a kind of a big thing. So if I were to summarize this real quick, um, so of your investigations you've had personally um, and maybe other ones you've seen that you've uh, maybe have a little bit more of an indirect role in, do you think of them actually have real impact on the world, especially, you know, with higher ups? Um, and how do you mitigate 
maybe some hub uh, you probably don't have to because I mean, you're working with you know russia stuff so you don't have to worry about classified information but um let's say that you know narco planes turns out as like, you know a secret you know fbi drug running thing i guess maybe be the extreme example of this but how would you work with things that maybe clash up against maybe some legal and um, ethical um uh, considerations yeah um that's oh, a really good question um and and one that i think like if you were to pursue or try to surface um, classified information in your um, investigations, then uh, phenomenal, you know, great, absolutely do that. Uh, I think that in some ways is kind of like the um, the, the ultimate goal or, or not, I don't know what to say goal, but like it can be uh, extremely beneficial to do so, or, or it can shed light on uh, really kind of strange and dark and grim places uh, in doing so. Um, I mean, one example I can kind of think of that um, you all have done is that uh, a year or two ago, there was that investigation that you did about um, uh, U.S. Army soldiers uh, storing like nuclear, um, uh, was it like nuclear terminology and stuff on flashcards on like a flashcard yeah, website? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah Fuka did that just for the 15 second version is there's like these like they're, they're basically like in training and they're learning about nuclear secrets, but like where stuff is stored and what the codes are and all that. And they were learning by using these online flashcard apps that by default were public. So you can like find other people's flashcards if, you know, for like chemistry 101 or whatever is the idea. But these are like nuclear secrets. And Fuka, our investigator, he found a bunch of these online and kind of found these. Some of them were even like, where are the real rockets and where are the dummy rockets? It's like silo nine, real silo three, dummy, you know, things like that. So, yeah, that was that was a little spicy. Yeah. Exactly. You know, happens to the best of us. Uh, who, who amongst us? Um, yeah. So, uh I'll say I think like the uh, the the correct or or you know right path to take here is um, to open source investigations in a way that um, comports with uh, morality and in all uh, possible cases the privacy of people who are unaffiliated or um, ancillary to your your investigation. So um, if you're like trying to unmask a bad person who, um, you know, shamedly does bad things, go ahead and unmask them. You know, if you have the proof and uh, the, the um, you know, horses, so to speak, uh, like go ahead and, and um, go for that. But like, you also have to be really, really careful about not doxing people uh, incorrectly. Uh, you have to be careful about protecting the, um, uh, the PII of the person who may have taken that photo that you're trying to geolocate or the video that you're trying to pin down. Um, <clears throat> I know a couple of weeks ago, you all had um, uh, Dr. Shelby Grossman on the uh, yeah, stage. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, I, <laughs> I would say uh, as, as a mere digital investigations pawn here, uh, she discussed the uh, ethical and moral implications of open source investigations, um, you know, far better than than I could. Um, but all I'll say, you know, on top of that is just, uh, you know, behave and uh, you know, do as you would to others. Behave. There you go. That's a good way to summarize it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks for that. And can for the for the first question, maybe this is a big question. Maybe you can't think about it, um, or you don't have any direct insights on it, but. Can you think of any time where OSINT that you've been involved in or maybe um, anything that you um, know about has affected kind of the real world policymakers, people who, you know, who actually make the decisions, not as, you know, not as weirdos on the computer? Well, that's a good question. Um, hmm. Okay, so yeah, I, uh, I don't know if this is so much uh, like 
policy, but um, one of the uh, investigations that I worked on, well, this wasn't actually really an investigation. It was, it was more of like a volunteer-led um, uh, project um, from the, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism um, back in like 2019, 2020, um, was uh, geolocating um, airstrikes in Afghanistan and um, trying to uh, figure out whether or not um, the U.S. or NATO forces in general were um, involved or implicated in uh, these airstrikes. And um, I remember geolocating like two and uh, the one of them, um, the uh, like reporters were able to actually talk to the person's family, um, get like comment from the military, uh, and um, just like I, I don't necessarily want to say it, it affected policy uh, all that much, but um, I am almost positive that like being part of that uh, project or that investigation, uh, and you know like materially contribu contributing to it. Uh, least raise the issue of civilian casualties or elevated the profile of the issue of civilian casualties uh to the u.s military which um you know it's good enough for me i gotta say uh i like can't like i said I, I really don't know if it affected policy or not but um i'm sure some officer got yelled at because of it and you know that's that's all right but you're saying you single-handedly caused the pull the pull out right yeah exactly yes yeah, okay yeah of course yeah i am delvin so kind of going off of that, this is a good transition about, um, so can you talk about your time with Air Wars and um, what maybe if any projects particularly you've worked on for them you'd recommend or maybe talk about um, how they operate and what their policies are uh, maybe as compared to other organizations you've worked with? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so uh, Air Wars is really cool um, because uh, they do almost like geolocation at scale, uh, which is really, really neat. Um, or like a really, really neat... Um, application, I guess, to uh, the digital investigations world. Um, I was a volunteer for the, with them for about like a year or so, maybe a little over a year. Um, and uh, really my um, main work there would consist of uh, geolocating, logging, and documenting um, uh, either airstrikes or artillery or other ordnance strikes um, that incredibly hurt or harmed civilians. Um, in Syria, I think I've worked on Syria, um, Libya, and Yemen in my time there, um, with Syria probably being the biggest one. Um, and, uh, yeah, the volunteers and investigators at Air Wars are absolutely phenomenal people. Uh, they, I truly cannot say enough good things about them and the work they do. Uh, um, I it really, like, I... I say I contributed to like because I know they also do um you know significant additional investigations and work with uh uh you know news outlets and stuff like that um but uh they're underpinning all that is just this massive database they have of geolocated and logged and documented uh airstrikes um that they uh will you know like bring to the U.S. and, and allied militaries for um comment and ultimately rectification um or ideally rectification um and if you go on their website you can just see this huge um the results of this this huge uh, log of airstrikes um, and uh, just kind of like being a, a a cog in the wheel there or the cog in the machine uh, for those uh, geolocations was amazing for me. I, I really enjoyed being a part of that. It kind of like allowed you to um, feel like you were contributing in a, in a real solid way to uh, you know, 
justice and accountability in um, modern con conflict. Uh, so yeah, I truly, truly cannot say enough good things about Air Wars. Um, look them up and uh, you know, follow them if you don't already. Yeah, I'd recommend them as well. They do a really good job. We've hired a handful of people, I think, from maybe two or three who volunteered there. It's kind of a it's a common I don't know, career trajectory of people doing open source work, especially in the human rights field, if you want to do something, you know, Amnesty or Human Rights Watch, that sort of stuff. Because a lot of people kind of yeah. get their start volunteering at Air Wars. It's kind of the standard trajectory, I guess you could say, and then work your way up. Exactly. The, the one other good thing I would say about working at Air Wars 2 is that it um, kind of like drummed in the importance of uh, logging and documenting my work uh, yeah. as opposed to, you know, I think it was still relatively on my quote unquote digital investigations career. Um, and at that point, you know, when I was uh, uh, before I was working with them, I was just kind of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what stuck. Uh, but they were like, no, you got to you have to collect all of your documentation. You have to log the time it happened at, you know, the um, uh, number of people involved, describe the event, yada, 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 um, get all the important metadata and information um, collected and certain, which really, I think, helped kind of like regularize and, um, you know, standardize my, my, my work, which was awesome. Yep, and they cover everybody. I mean, they do, you know, U.S. strikes, Turkish strikes, Israeli strikes, Russian strikes, uh, Saudi strikes. They they do everybody, and they're um, they're head. I can't remember Chris. Can't remember his first name. Sorry, he, he's testified in, with Congress, I think, a few times about um, U.S. these strikes gone awry. Yeah. Um, so yeah, their work actually has big impact too. So this is not just a stage talk to promote them, but um, <laughs> very nice things to say about their work too. So Air Wars, I'll put a link to them. Airwars.org is their site. Um, yeah. Okay, um, so next question here. This is kind of a more fun question. Um, what is the sketchiest? Instead of sketchiest, maybe I can say like maybe most obscure or um, or maybe most um, I don't know trifling thing that you've used to geolocation to to geolocate something off of. So like one direction or something like that. So if you maybe found some I don't know something funny or something you know quirky that you've used for geolocation, I think most people have done geolocation have, have at least one story about this. Yeah, hell yeah, I've got a great one here. Um, okay, so I, not to beat a dead horse here, but I, uh, going back to the Tochka um, story that I, I worked on a month or so ago, uh, <laughs> really getting in the weeds here. Uh, I, there was like one video of this launch, right? And the video was like six seconds long. For maybe four frames at like three to three uh, and one tenth of a second into the video, uh, there are briefly, briefly, three uh, bare-topped poles uh, visible in the video. And I mean, like, barely. Bare, like, they, they don't have any wires. They don't have oh, any. Oh, okay. I thought you meant, like, there's, like, stuff oh, there. Okay, sorry, 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 sorry. I was like, well, it's yeah. Russia, right? Okay, sorry. Yeah, right. Anything happened. Um, yeah, like, they're just, like, plain poles. Like, no wires, nothing like that. Um, and I was kind of dumbfounded by what those poles were. I was just like, what the heck? Um and uh, ended up kind of finding out uh, that the um, town that I suspected the launch came from had this uh, public transit system uh, called a, a, it was basically a trolley trolley bus system, you know, kind of like in San Francisco or whatever. Uh, that um, the 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 poles themselves looked exactly like um, the uh, poles, the, the tops of the three poles uh, seen in the video for three seconds. Uh, and then um, going back, I actually found this um, weird blog forum thing uh, focused on um, uh, public transit systems from the former Soviet Union. And it had like 
thousands of photos of the, the catalog. Polls. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Of these, uh, this um, the, the polls of, of this, you know, former um, Soviet Union's town uh, in like Hartsysk, uh, Eastern Ukraine. And um, I was like, wow, well, those those are the polls, all right. You know, those are those look exactly like the polls uh, seen in the video. Um, and uh, yeah, it ended up being able to pin down the um, what I think is the the exact location of the launch um, based on the you know one tenth of a second four frames of these three polls that I ended up being able to track back to this uh, transit enthusiast website from the, the former Soviet Union. So um, yeah, that that was a, a really weird one. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that's kind of the fun part of doing this work is you become an instant expert for 15 <laughs> minutes on the most obscure yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. And if it's someone's exactly. interested, if someone's more interested in more of these kind of like I call them stunt geolocations, where you like find one little obscure detail and kind of run with it. Mm-hmm. Um, our colleague um, Carlos Gonzalez, he is oh boy, he he is as I said in the chat earlier, he is working on a different level than the rest of us. Um, I'll, I'll link to some of the things he's done into the chat right now. Um, he does a lot of work with the Europol cases, the Europol identifying object cases, to where it's like the, you know, in short, Europol, the European police um, organization, they um, work with child abuse exploitation imagery, and they're trying to locate the victims and, and the suspects. And from the videos, they'll have like random objects, so like a grocery bag or a toy or a backpack or whatever. And the idea is that if you can figure out the um, item, then you could you know, possibly find the place and time where the where it's captured, like a grocery store, so you can find nearby grocery stores. And he will do the most insane geolocations you'll ever see in your life. Um, I linked to his user profile just now um, in the chat. So yeah, if you want to see that, like him do like a six month investigation on a single grocery bag, um, check out his profile and read some of his stuff. It, it's it's insane. The the other thing I love too is the. Um... Uh, at Obertix on, on Twitter, uh, yeah, whenever yeah. Uh, they geolocate um, the planes, like the, the, the planes released by, uh, you know, images of planes flying, I don't know, somewhere over the Pacific, like by CENTCOM or something like that, release these photos. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, 400 miles north of Hawaii based on the cloud patterns at the time. Yeah. Like, yeah. How did you do that? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. Truly, truly God-tier uh, geolocation there. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just like a different plane of existence than the rest of us. Yeah. Uh, okay, let me look through the other questions here. So, give it for Air Wars. Dun, 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 dun. So, um, here's another question. And you guys have, we have about 10 more minutes. So, if anyone has more questions, please do um, pop them into the um, stage talk chat. If we can, we have a few more. Have another question or two. Um, so, one question we had was Are there different styles of methodology? So, if there's imagery, then you go to geolocation, and then, or for example, you know, for example, you go to, imagery to geolocation avenue or maybe you go from leaked documents to analysis um so for these methodologies do you do you kind of do them discreetly separately do they overlap um i don't know if you have anything it's kind of a very abstract question but you have anything you want to talk about yeah with yeah i think i think i know what you mean and it's kind of interesting timing because it's something i've been thinking a little bit more about lately like can or should i or the open source community generally um almost provide like pathways for uh or common pathways for investigations so like you alluded to if you've got a picture or video try the geolocation route if you've got uh you know um a a diamond stuck in the rough of you know ten thousand documents maybe you want to try uh you know scraping or anomaly detection if you've got um you know uh satellite imagery maybe leave it to the community whatever um yeah i uh think there are kind of like common um uh routes that I'll take uh, at least initially to investigations, um, but 
going back to one of the things I was saying earlier in the talk, um, I really do not want to limit myself to anything at any particular period in time. Um, I think the uh, one of the most beneficial skills to have as an investigator or or as somebody who's interested in this is like being able to think outside the box. So, um, like, can you mix and match, you know, various tracks? or various skills to try to prove or verify what you're looking for um, using not only geolocation, but also like scraping or whatever. Um, there was one thing I was, uh, oh, there was a, a piece I did um, like two years ago, maybe? maybe a year or two ago, um, focused on uh, oil spills off the coast of Nigeria. And um, Shell, to their credit, like the oil company Shell, to their credit, releases um, uh sustainability or um, uh, data, I guess, on um, the oil spills that uh, they're responsible for in, in and around Nigeria. Um, so I ended up scraping all of those uh, uh, tables, putting them into, again, a Google Sheet, um, doing some basic analysis on it, uh, but then also um, diving into uh, particularly nasty offenders and using, um, like, satellite imagery, using um, uh, like geolocation, um, kind of pattern recognition and stuff, uh, based on all sorts of interesting stuff, uh, and interesting data sets like that, uh, to build out this larger investigation into, um, an oil rig that was spilling off the, the coast of Nigeria. Um, so yeah, while that, while I will say that it's like helpful, I think to have these initial tracks that, uh, get you, you know, part of the way, uh, for any given, um, investigation or, or piece of research, uh, it's also important to be able to know when to like mix and match them and, and, uh, um, you know, pull in other data sets or skills or whatever, or other people too. Great. Yeah. Thanks for that. Uh, we have two more questions in the chat here. So Jake, uh, hi Jake, uh, Krebs asked, are you doing any analysis on audio for O-Center geolocation? No, I'm not. I'm really, really not. I have uh, around the time of the Russian radio stuff that I was working on in the spring, I uh, was like briefly dabbling with the idea of of um, doing uh, audio analysis or um, even just kind of like data collection on um, the you know Russian military radios, but um, did not really get anywhere with that. I think it was a combination of my day job getting too busy, uh, not having the requisite skills, and uh, there being other people who could do it far more effectively than I could. Um, so unfortunately, the answer is, is a, a sad no, but it's an area that I am really, really interested in and, and would love to do more of in the future. Yeah, it's it's audio is a it's a different beast, right? Uh, I always get questions about like, can you do voice analysis? It's like, well, you can, but um, we we did voice analysis once with an investigation, and it um, went through this firm in Latvia or Estonia, I can't remember which. Or I think actually, I think it was Lithuania, and it cost thousands of dollars um, or euros, I guess you could say, for like a one quick what we thought was quick audio analysis for voice. So it's it's not easy, right? It's it's a little tougher, more complicated. We work with audio. You don't did it um, kind of like end up verifying something or did it, did it yeah. work? Yeah, yeah. Cool. It worked. Yeah, we, um, I'm, this isn't the point of, the, of this talk, but very quickly we had, um, we were trying to match a voice sample um, of this guy with these leaked calls the Ukrainian security services put out um, to make sure they were actually the same person because we called him and got him to talk for a while, tricked him, um, got him to talk for a while on the phone. Um, and, and it ended up confirming it. Uh, we had other, this is just one of like, you know, five ways we were confirming it. This is the guy, but yeah. Um, 
Um, okay, and one more question here. Uh, there's a few other great. Yeah, Jake, thanks for that. The Merlin ID app is really cool. Yeah, the um, I've yeah. I've used the Merlin app just normal like bird watching things before. So the Merlin app is really cool just for normal bird watching, but also theoretically, if you have like a bird song in the background, you can figure out what bird it is uh, on a video. That's a I love I love Merlin. Yep, it's great. Yeah. Um, so last question here um, from someone at the bean collector with a really cool avi. It's like, I think John Cena is Mao. So John Cena hates landlords, I guess, <laughs> according to his <laughs> avatar. Um, do you think the recent surge in OSINT or GEOINT from Ukraine will help or hinder the overall community? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I'm ultimately optimistic about these things. I would say it's going to help it, um, if only to get more people involved in the uh, the open source community. And Ark, I'm kind of curious what you think too. But like, I think having seen the growth and uh, strengthening of the community over the last the open or you know digital investigations community over the last seven or eight years, um, I think capabilities and um, the, really the capabilities of the uh, community itself have grown with the size of it. Uh, and as a result, I uh, have a tough time um, believing that if the community is growing, it's not, you know, it, it's not also strengthening, um, which is to say that I, I think more people like being involved in um, geolocation, in open source investigations, uh, in digital investigations writ large, uh, will ultimately be be good for the community um, in the kind of vein of, you know, rising tide lifts all, lifts all, lifts all boats. Um, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm bullish. I'm, I'm optimistic. Great. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm skeptical, but I think overall it'll be, mm -hmm. hopefully overall it'll be good. Yeah. And just yeah, because we have one, one last bonus question. Um, what's the tool that you haven't made, but you would like to use while doing research? So what is your, a dream, if you had a little bit better Python skills or more time, what is something that you would like to be able to do or make or um, to help your, like, make your life easier? Okay. Uh, easy, hands down. If there is a software engineer out here who can build this for me, I will pay you any sum of money. Uh, area, uh, like, like a tool that will allow you to, uh, will show you where you've already checked in satellite imagery before. Uh, so if you're like panning through Google Earth and uh, you know, you're looking across a mountain range, right? And you look at one mountain, move on to the next one. Uh, but then fast forward a week, you still haven't found what you're looking for. Uh, you go back to the first mountain and it's like shaded red or something like you've already looked here. Uh, um, I would love uh, a, a tool like that. Um, so like a shape, I, like a KML, like an automatically drawn KML on Google Earth basically? Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, something like that, you, you know, and, and if it could be like platform agnostic, agnostic, you know, if you could apply it to Sentinel-2, if you could apply it to Planet, if you could apply it to, you know, bring your own imagery, um, I would bend over backwards for that. That would be awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't tell you how many times that I have just like barking up the same uh, location searching for geolocation of X and uh, it's only been much later that I've realized, wait, geez, I already searched here, you know, last week. <laughs> that's a, that's a cool, yeah. Someone mentioned in the chat just now that somebody has a very simple version of that they've made and it's, uh, it makes it to a grid automatically. So you can like check a little box within a grid is how I think, how I think I understand Gabor, if that's what you were saying. Um, and Tristan is saying it's an interesting idea. So you may get Tristan to work on this, but no, that's, that's a great point. And, Something I've kind of done manually this before, so sorry to hijack this, but like something that maybe you can sort of do manually in a collaborative effort is you can make a KML file or a KMZ um, like on Google Drive that people share. 
and then like that automatically because you can like you can point your um your google earth to open a you know a kml that's like automatically updated like a google earth or whatever and if you were kind of doing a group geolocation effort you can have people draw like a, like you know you can draw a shape or a polygon right you can like shade off an area so for people who want it like a very you're you want the automated version of this if you want to do the the boring manual version of this and you're working collaboratively um yeah, you can you can manually do this by drawing the polygons, but that's as you said, that's that's obnoxious. But hopefully, if you could combine this, you know, kind of tool this with kind of the you know shared KML KMZ file, that would be that would be really cool. Oh, yeah, people make these collaborative crowdsourced geolocation efforts a lot easier. Much easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, like I said, if you think you can build that, give me a shout. I uh, would would be happy to work with you. Cool. Great. Well, we're right on time, right? Exactly an hour. So that worked out really well. So um, thanks to everybody who listened. Um, if you have not, um, if you didn't get to listen to the beginning of this and you like to listen, um, Giancarlo is going to put a recording of this up tomorrow on the SoundCloud. And if you are listening to this on the SoundCloud now, thank you for listening to the very end. Um, so this has, uh, again, been a Discord stage talk on the Bellingcat server. This is was RC with Lines of Actual Control. You can see him on Twitter on um twitter.com slash um what is it um line what is it lo actual control lo actual control or actual control that substack.com that's actual control that substack.com if you want to read his free newsletter have some of his investigative work um thanks again for listening and we'll be signing off now awesome thanks so much everybody great speaking thanks guys thank you for listening to the stage talk if you'd like to catch a stage talk live and ask the guest questions, join the Bellingcat Discord server by visiting www.discord.gg forward slash Bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled 1983 by Ben Elson and is courtesy of Epidemic Sound.